Hello, fellow Kentuckians and other friends, and welcome to a new edition of My Old Kentucky Podcast. My name is Robert Connie, and joining me, as always, is Jasmine Smith. Jasmine, how are you today? I'm doing well, Robert. How are you? I guess I'm doing all right. Uh, me personally, I'm doing okay. I'm not sure about the state, the state as a whole. Uh, today's show is mostly focused around COVID. We have our numbers that we do every week. Then Jasmine's going to talk to us about two specific Supreme Court of Kentucky rulings that have to do with COVID. And then I'm going to talk a little bit about the fallout that's happened since those rulings took place. In addition to that, we have some more extensive quick hits, but most of the show will be focused around this really, really horrible COVID week that we've had this past week. So without any further ado, let's talk about the COVID numbers. Okay, Jasmine, Kentucky's COVID numbers continue to get worse and worse. We are now about as bad as we were during the winter, and none of our indicators really show any signs of getting any better. And in fact, many of them look like they're getting worse. So in terms of our total number of cases in both the seven and 14 day averages, they are about as bad as they ever have been. We are averaging solidly more than 3,200 cases per day. And our winter peak was 4,200. So, you know, we are, we are not quite as high as that, but we have had some days that have approached the highest days ever. Um, but, but our averages are, are growing, are creeping up. And, and we, you know, this week we had the highest Monday ever. And today was one of the highest Wednesdays ever. Our deaths have risen substantially up to about 10 per day. During the winter, we were actually averaging more than 40 per day at some point. That's like, you know, 14-day average of 40 per day. That's that's huge. And we are, we're not anywhere close to that in terms of, a, of an average yet. But today, Jasmine, today on Wednesday, this is after I wrote this down, there was uh, 65 deaths in the COVID report today, which which was substantial, wow. one of the highest death days ever. And if we see anything like that, our death average will approach what it was in the winter. Deaths, as we keep saying, are a lagging indicator. The way that we vaccinated a lot of old folks does it did kind of indicate that there might be a different story here, but but you know that 65 number does not portend good news in the future. So deaths are up, and the average may be getting much higher soon. Hospitalizations now are worse than ever before, and this is really the metric that's definitely the most concerning. The winter peak for the seven-day average of hospitalizations was 1,851. We hit that number on January the 8th. This week, the seven-day average crossed over the 1860 mark, so we are higher than we were in January. In August 20th, we actually set the one-day all-time record of 2,017 people in the hospital due to COVID. That is the most that we've ever had, and you know, across the state, we are hearing about it. There are places that are having to shut down, you know, uh, voluntary surgeries, um, non-essential surgeries to, to convert those wards into COVID wards. Um, we are starting to see our nurses be stretched extra thin. The number of rooms in the ICU uh, are, are declining rapidly, or I guess I should say beds, because rooms is almost probably not, not even a realistic thing. It's not a room. It's a bed that you get if you're in the ICU with COVID at this point. And our ability to, to, to staff those beds and staff those rooms is declining because of the amount of care that's needed and just the tremendous amount of burnout that many nurses and, and many people in the, the medical field are, are feeling across the state right now. So so those are just kind of our, our uh, top-level numbers. They are as worse are as bad as they've ever been. All 120 counties in Kentucky are red. Until yesterday, Kentucky's smallest county, Robertson County, uh, was was holding out as as orange, but they crossed over into the red on Wednesday. 
And, you know, red is 25 cases per 100,000. And, of course, there are different places across the state that have just really, really eclipsed that number. And southeastern Kentucky continues to just get absolutely walloped. Several counties are over 150 cases per 100,000 population. Jackson County is at 167. Laurel is at 154. Whitley is at 167. Bell is at 162. Clay is the highest county in the whole state with 194. And McGoffin is at 183. This is as of Tuesday. It's probably different today. More than 15 counties in the area besides those have more than 100 cases. You know, that's 15 counties. I'm not going to read them all because there's so many. But th- there's a substantial. Most of the counties in southeastern Kentucky are more than 100, 000, or more than 100 cases per 100,000 population. And several other counties across the state have more than 100 cases per 100,000. But, but really, no place is, is experiencing COVID quite like southeastern Kentucky with the huge and intense and all-encompassing nature of, of COVID in just about every county being over 100 cases per 100,000 in, in just about everywhere you go in southeastern Kentucky. So after a modest rise in cases two weeks ago, we talked about that in the show last week where we said like Louisville might be actually calming down a little bit. That is not the case anymore. Louisville saw a massive jump. We went from 2,200 cases two weeks ago to 3,200 last week. That's a 45% jump, very substantial. Maybe some pent-up demand, uh, some pent-up you know, uh, cases that were there two weeks ago and we had a more modest rise. You know, The three-week average is, is a little bit less severe, but yeah, that's a pretty huge jump. Lexington, which did not see a, a small jump two weeks ago, did see a, you know a pretty much inline jump, 17% from 1100 or from yeah 1109 cases to 1295 cases. So we are just increasing. We're increasing in cases in our urban areas, in our rural areas, basically everywhere. Cases are going up. Vaccines do continue to to go into arms though, and, and it is worth saying. If you're vaccinated, you are significantly safer. And, and among, the, among the people who are in the hospital, among the people who are dying, it's a tiny, tiny fraction of people who have been vaccinated who are in such dire straits. Nearly all of our problems are coming from unvaccinated people. So about 7,500 Kentuckians each day are opting to get the vaccine. There was a substantial rise from 2,500 to about 7,500, but we have really stabilized at that level for, for a few weeks at this point. It's If we only vaccinate 7,500 people per day, it's going to take us a very, very long time uh, for, for Kentucky to get fully vaccinated. That's just kind of the way it's going. The leveling out has definitely been felt in Louisville, which saw 7,600 new cases last week. And then the week before that, there were 7,300 cases or 7,300 people getting the vaccine. Uh, And then three weeks ago, there were 7,800. So not a lot of movement. Uh, You know, Louisville gets about as many vaccines per week as the state does in a day. And it hasn't really changed. Uh, We haven't seen growth. We haven't seen a decline. Three weeks of stability here in Louisville. Just to compare, though, at the beginning of 1C, when when really vaccines first started to become very widely available and lots of people were eligible to get them, Louisville was vaccinating 3,700 people per week. So five times just about the amount of people being vaccinated per week as we are seeing right now when we were really, really going. So a lot of space in Louisville to get vaccinated. I think there's about 60% or so of the city that's been vaccinated, maybe a little bit more than that. So lots of people still to get vaccinated here in town. Several counties in central Kentucky now have more than 50% of the population with at least one shot of the vaccine. The counties are Jefferson, Oldham, Hardin, Nelson, Anderson, Henry, Franklin, Scott, Woodford, uh, Fayette, Jessamine, Mercer, Boyle, Clark, and Bourbon. 
So all of those are kind of in, you know, the Golden Triangle type area, or at least very close to it. Uh, that That is the part of the state that's the most highly vaccinated. But there are two other counties with more than 50% vaccination, and that's Lyon County in Western Kentucky and Perry County in Eastern Kentucky. Uh, it's worth saying that those two counties both have a very significant uh, healthcare workforce. Um, Lyon County is a pretty small place. Um, we got a lot of friends from there, but a lot of the people who who have jobs there work in the healthcare field, which of course a lot of them are starting to mandate vaccines. So uh, you know I'm not too surprised to see them a lot higher. And the same with Perry County. That's Hazard. Hazard has one of the biggest hospitals in the whole state is down there in Hazard. So that doesn't surprise me that they have a high vaccination rate as well. So you know got to get the rest of the state to get that to get to that place. And you did notice that Perry County right smack dab in the middle of southeastern Kentucky, not one of those places with more than 150 cases per 100,000 people. So, you know, just in terms of the numbers, this is a really, really bad time for COVID. Our hospitals are filling up. Uh, the prognosis is really, really grim for unvaccinated people. And, and, you know, you just have to be careful all the time. If anything happens, a hospital bed may be hard to come by. So drive safe. <laughs> Watch out for, you know, you know, falling branches of trees like i don't know if if, don't get into an accident like just be very careful in all the things that you do because if you if you need a hospital it's going to be tough to get in you know i I just feel really really bad for you know people are who are pregnant or maybe giving birth this week or you know people Mm -hmm. who you know have some sort of medical condition that that gets to them this week uh that you know any other time they'd have been able to access health care you know, in a much easier fashion than they would this week. There are a lot of problems with American-style healthcare, and uh, one of the things that we've always been able to say is we have Imtala, we have the ability, if something's happening to you, you can go to the doctor. Uh, you can go to the hospital. Um, that is not true in a lot of other places in the world. Of course, once you leave the the hospital, we don't exactly treat you that great. That is true uh, in the entire United States. But, you know, the one kind of saving grace is that you can go to the hospital, and now that's not even true. So, you know, just, I guess, be careful. And let's hope that this ends soon. So those are our COVID numbers. Jasmine, tell us the bad news we have about the Supreme Court and some defeats that Governor Bashir uh, suffered at the hands uh, of the Supreme Court this week. Okay, the Supreme Court of Kentucky had a special rendition on Saturday that contained two rulings in important COVID related cases. So the first one we're going to talk about is Cameron versus Bashir. This is an opinion authored by Justice Van Meter. Um, Justice Van Meter, I would say, is one of the more conservative judges on the Supreme Court. But this case is Daniel Cameron's motion for relief from a temporary injunction that was issued by the Franklin Circuit Court. So we talked about this back in the spring. Franklin Circuit Court issued a temporary injunction to keep House Bill 1, Senate Bill 1, Senate Bill 2 and a House Joint Resolution 77 from going into effect. So these were the bills and resolutions passed that limited the governor's executive power during a state of emergency. Because Franklin Circuit Court issued that injunction, Governor Bashir could still issue orders outside of the 30 days as stated in the new laws. So that's what this case is about. Right. Should should they have issued the injunction. But Daniel Cameron is making two arguments. First, he's arguing that the governor lacked standing to sue over the enforcement of these bills in the first place. And two, that the court should not have issued the injunction. 
So just like briefly talking about the standing issue, we've talked about this before. All plaintiffs must have standing to sue and standing requires an injury that the defendant caused the injury and that that injury can be redressed by the court. Mm -hmm. And Daniel Cameron argued that there was no injury because the governor still has the ability to respond to emergencies. And he also argued that there was no redressability because the injunction did not redress anything and that it didn't like restrain him or cause him to mandatorily act. So he's basically saying here that like there wasn't really an injury yet. So Senate bill one gives the attorney general veto power um, during an emergency and he hasn't used it yet. So he's saying that there was no standing. The court addresses this argument and said that Bashir does not have to wait until the AG has invoked his veto power to file suit because there's a law called the declaratory judgment act that allows courts to determine a litigant's a litigant's rights before the harm occurs and just requires the existence of an actual controversy. And a controversy exists when um, the defendant's position would impair the plaintiff's rights. And the court said that that's happened here. So there is a controversy. Bashir does have standing. So they ruled in Bashir's favor in issue number one. Are you with me? I am. So, so far, so good for the governor. But things really fell apart in the second half for him. Is that what? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Second issue, should Franklin Circuit Court have granted the injunction? And we've talked about the standard for this several times before as well. For a temporary injunction to be granted, which, you know, is basically a stay until there's a ruling on the merits of a suit. And that's what Franklin circuit court did. But for an injunction to be granted, you have to have an irreparable injury. You have to um, weigh the equities and then also evaluate whether a substantial question has been presented. And so looking at that first one, the irreparable injury Um, The Supreme Court said that there is no irreparable injury because we presume that statutes are constitutional. And they also said that this court has been explicit that the governor's powers, except in a limited number of instances expressly set forth in the Constitution, derive from statutes passed by the General Assembly. So what basically they're saying is like if it isn't addressed in the Constitution itself, all powers have to come from the General Assembly, which is kind of like a much more narrow reading of the governor's power than right. ex- exists in a lot of other places. Yeah. Okay. Right. And, and they cite a lot of case law about cases where they have said similar things in the past. Okay. So with regard to weighing the equities, the Supreme Court basically said that Considering the pandemic and its ongoing nature and then juxtaposing that with the 2021 legislation and the more localized approach that the legislature envisioned, I guess, um, they're saying weighing the equities that weighs against issuing a temporary injunction as well. And in that analysis, they actually cited to ACRI, which was the prior... um, 
COVID orders case that the Supreme Court issued several months ago. And they talked about how in Acre, they even said that the General Assembly could limit the governor's statutorily derived emergency powers if it wanted to. And that's what they've done. So they said that equities also weighs in favor of the attorney general. Yeah, I, I guess what they're trying to say here, and, and you correct me if my interpretation of what you said is is wrong, but it sounds like they were like, we have this issue that's constitutional in nature where you're kind of pitting the governor against the legislature. And, you know, we have a lot of rules that say in case law and, and a lot of constitutions and just kind of like customary law that says that, you know, we the, the legislature basically has power, more power than the executive here and, and should be able to limit the executive if they want. And they say, well, OK, we have this issue that's weighing against like the fact that the legislature is not responding as strongly to a global pandemic than the governor is. And what they're saying is like, well, if we rule against the governor here, local jurisdictions that want to take a more aggressive approach, like our urban areas or, you know, more progressive rural areas or smaller cities or whatever, they can still take these because the the legislation that got passed didn't necessarily uh, take any power away from them. And just kind of saying that weighing those two things against each other, they think that it's it's better off to, to... strip the governor's powers here, uh, allow these laws to go through, and kind of allow smaller jurisdictions to to institute whatever kind of measures that they want to. Is is that kind of fair? Yeah, I think that's fair. Okay. And then I think that like all of these factors kind of like blend together a little bit because the last factor is evaluating whether a substantial question has been presented. And the Supreme Court kind of reiterates what they've said in their other two analysis uh, analyses that the governor's powers come from the general assembly and they're the ones who set the public policy. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's really like the theme of, of the whole opinion, I think. Yeah, I get that. I, I kind of understand what they're saying that I, I, I see what they're saying. I don't, I don't necessarily uh, agree with it, uh, but I kind of understand what they're saying is that like basically the governor and the executive branch is a, the, supposed to be the group that like carries out laws that are passed by the legislature and that like the governor's powers come from the General Assembly. And if the governor doesn't necessarily agree with what the General Assembly is doing, he can't just like set off on his own path. That like kind of yeah, that that's, I think, the argument that they're siding with. Um, I think yeah. that there's other shades of that that may I mean, obviously, there's other other pieces of the argument. Right. And so. On this issue of should the injunction have been granted, the Supreme Court said, no, it should not have. The trial court abused its discretion when they did that. Mm-hmm. And I do think, you know, I I don't practice civil law, so I'm not as familiar with, you know, decades of case law about temporary injunctions and executive power. But I am, I was a little surprised by the ruling just because abuse of discretion is a very deferential standard to the trial court. I lose on abuse of discretion all the time. <laughs> yeah, right. So, so I think that's why this was a little bit surprising. Yeah. Um, the last thing I'll note about this opinion is that there is a concurrence. So a concurrence is we agree with, you know, the holding in the case, but Sometimes it might be we disagree about this one part or we agree, but we also want to say something else. Yeah, um, we agree, so, but for a different reason sometimes. Yeah, yeah. yes, exactly. And so um, Justice Hughes and Justice Minton concurred with the majority. And 
I think the gist of the concurrence, they were basically saying like, we need a ruling on the merits of these cases because we're going to keep having these problems with the ongoing pandemic. And at this point, the attorney general has not even addressed the case on the merits because he didn't believe that the governor has standing. Um, but we need, we need to rule on the merits in these cases. And then at the end, they note that the parties should lay down their swords and work together. All right, Jasmine, let me ask you a question here. So, so this entire thing that we've been talking about is not a ruling in a case, right? It's a ruling, uh, it, it's, it's a ruling on the motion for relief from a temporary injunction, right? Yes, exactly. And, and the thing is, <laughs> spoiler alert for the, the next part of this, the show, but the governor basically removed his executive order, um, which basically makes the case itself moot, right? Am I right about that? They've said he can sue on the merits of the bills that he sued over, but the AG was granted relief from the temporary injunction, and so that is why he rescinded his mask mandate for schools. Yeah, I get that. So, so oh, okay, okay. So are we going to get a ruling on the cases, on the merits of the case now anyway or because he removed his executive order for for masks in schools are we not going to get a, a, a ruling on the merits of the whole case well this is uh, on the merits this is about the, the laws themselves the yeah house bill one senate bill one and two and hjr 77 okay. and and so like now that issue has to be argued by both sides in the franklin circuit court case okay um, so th- this is just a ruling on the motion for relief from the injunction. So yeah, I got gotcha. you. Okay, that makes more sense. I I I, get, I understand what's going on here. Uh, so we will we will in fact get a ruling on this whole case, and it will have to be argued. This was just um, the the basically removing the stay. I, well, I don't even know if that's the right word, but basically it, it functions as a stay in my mind as a uh, not a lawyer. <laughs> it, it allowed the go- governor continue to act as if these laws hadn't been passed. Um, right. And, and that was what the Franklin Circuit Court had said. And the Supreme Court said, no, you have to operate as if they have, in fact, passed while we determine the actual legality of the laws, the constitutionality of the laws. Right. But they also did hold that Bashir did have standing mm-hmm. to sue over right. the enforcement of the bill. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, it, and it is a little surprising. It isn't it isn't a good sign for the governor that they ruled this way on the temporary injunction for the case as a whole, but it still has to be argued, right? Correct. Okay. (sighs) Okay. All right. Well, I think I got it, Jasmine. Uh, So, I mean, I've obviously read a lot about this already, but of course, all of the legal details are things I want to wait for for your, uh, your insight into. And I do feel like a lot more informed after hearing all of that. So yeah, it it also may be interesting that, uh, you know, justices Hughes and Minton uh, wrote this concurrence because it does seem like they wanted this to be unanimous and it probably wouldn't have been, uh, you know, if, you know, because it it might not have been trending that way at some point, because these two do seem like they're much more interested uh, in exploring the case further and not as, you know, strident and 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 trying to overturn mm-hmm. this as the other two could be a hint also about the overall case moving forward. Yeah, and then I also just wanted to note the second opinion, which was Bashir versus Goodwood. This was an opinion authored by Justice Keller, and this is the case that was filed in Scott County Circuit Court, where a judge granted a temporary injunction. 
for the plaintiff bars, which were Goodwood Brewing, um, Dundee Tavern, and a couple others. Um, and that injunction stayed Bashir's COVID executive orders. Um, so we talked about this on the show as well. The Scott County judge did not allow Bashir to put on evidence in opposition of the motion for the injunction. And the Supreme Court ruled that this was error and vacated that temporary injunction as well. Um, the court also said that it would not remand the case back to circuit court for an evidentiary hearing because the issue in this case is moot mm. as the governor's executive orders that would affect the bars are no longer in effect. So that's, that's that ruling. That, that is okay. Well, that is wild to me, Jasmine, that the Scott County judge didn't allow the governor to put in evidence <laughs> opposed to the motion. It seems like if you're going to make a ruling, you should hear from both sides as a judge, I, you know, Maybe it's maybe it's better that we're just, you know, cutting to the chase here. You know, I am a conservative and I'm going to rule for conservatives. I don't care what the liberals have to say. Uh, that could be, you know, where we're headed. But the Supreme Court yeah. obviously doesn't think that that's the right way to go about doing it yet. The Supreme Court also noted that the Scott County Circuit Court state also in its order stated that the governor was specifically enjoined against issuing or enforcing new restrictions against Goodwood. So in the Scott County order, the judge said, you also can't enact future orders. <laughs> and um, so the Supreme Court said, we take this opportunity to reiterate that courts are not empowered to enjoin possible future violations of the law. So a little bit of a smackdown of that Scott County judge. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's elected judges, man. They they create some real interesting situations. So, all right, there you go. All right. Well, it, I, I guess that was one one win for for Governor Bashir, and I think actually that one came out first. So everybody's like, all right, we're feeling good. And then the second one came out, and they won the first part. Like, okay. And then they got to the second part of the opinion, and it was like, oh no. Uh, yeah. So anything. Yeah, so. I guess the last thing to note here is that means there is there's not a statewide mask mandate for all schools, but the Kentucky Board of Education's mask mate mask mandate is still in place for public schools. Right. Yeah, we're going to get right into that. So, yeah. Anything all else right. about the, the cases before we roll on to the next piece? No, I don't think so. All right. So I wanted to do this thing. Jasmine obviously had to read this. What did you say? It was like 35 page opinion. That was one you know, was. One, um, Cameron versus Bashir was 34 pages and Bashir versus Goodwood was 25 pages. Gosh. All right. So that's like 50 pages or plus 50 pages plus of legal, uh, opinions. So, you know, that's what Jasmine did this week. Uh, I'm going to follow up this segment by talking about what happened afterwards. So yeah, the most immediate impact is that the governor Bashir canceled his executive order around the mask mandates for all schools and daycare centers. So, this means that, you know, uh, that basically nothing <laughs> because uh, I, I OK, that's not true. It does mean some things. So there is a mandate from the Kentucky Board of Education, which mandates that masks must be worn in all public schools. And there is a mask mandate from the Cabinet for Health and Family Services for all child care settings. So this really impacts privates and parochial schools it says that you know basically because of the governor canceling his mandate saying all schools have to have a mask mandate private schools which are not under the jurisdiction of the kentucky board of education they are allowed to escape 
mask mandates. And uh, we have heard that the Diocese of Louisville is going to continue to mandate masks in all of their schools, but the Diocese of Covington, I think that that's right. I think, yes, the Diocese of Covington, which covers all of the Northern Kentucky school districts and then also everybody to the east, they are not going to continue with their mask mandates. They're going to make masks optional. And there are a lot of private school, or a lot of Catholic schools up in Northern Kentucky, and there are uh, Catholic schools and a few in, in, in some of the smaller cities across Eastern Kentucky. So that's the upshot of how that goes. So Senate President Robert Stivers also said that he believed that the mandates that these mandates, the mandates from the Kentucky Board of Education and the mandates from the Cabinet for Health and Public Services, they run afoul of Senate Bill 2 from the 2021 session. So that's his opinion. But he didn't comment about the need of any new or pending litigation. And, and you know, we will kind of see, I guess, when we get a ruling on the merits uh, from uh, on this case in total, right? That That's kind of where the, the justices have the ability to make a ruling about these specific mandates um, and address the legality of them whenever they hear the entire case on its merits. So so that's kind of where we're standing in terms of the immediate aftermath of that, the, the canceling of the executive order, but keeping these other uh, mask mandates in place from actual, you know, boards and, and you know, regulatory agencies. So to me, Jasmine, I, the other thing I, I took away from this is uh, it clarified to me a bit of Governor Bashir's reticence to issue a new statewide mask mandate. Uh, that was something that a lot of people were wondering about, especially with a huge run-up in cases. You know, all of 2020, basically, we had a mask mandate throughout the entire state. Now we're seeing a huge, huge, huge rise in cases, and we haven't seen that return. And a lot of people wondered why. Many political elites across the state often seem to be able to predict with an uncanny accuracy how the Supreme Court of Kentucky is going to rule in the near future. Uh, I don't know if you have uh, experience in this, Jasmine, but but uh, I hear sometimes people who are like, this is how the Supreme Court is going to rule, and they're often right, even when it's a little bit surprising. Uh, am, I, am I way off in that, or do you, do you see that as well? Yeah, I agree with that. <laughs> yeah. So anyways, it might be the case... That Governor Bashir knew that his mandate was not going to make it through the courts, that basically the stay was going to be removed. His, uh, you know, mask mandate for the whole state would be in huge jeopardy and just decided not to go forward with it and do a, a, try to approach it from a different perspective. That might be why the governor was less, you know, willing to issue a mask mandate during this summertime surge of the Delta variant. The upshot of all this, too, is that the legislative Republicans now own most of Kentucky's response to COVID. You know, the governor's hands are, are tied. Uh, he's not really able to do much beyond what he has done. And it does seem like the courts are on track to rule a lot of his ability, or to, to rule that his abilities uh, to issue mandates that were restricted in the session are, are going to be legal. That is how it is trending right now. Not for sure, but where it's trending. And so Republican re- legislators that change the rules, they basically own the response, and I gotta say, so far, not so great. It hasn't been very good. One thing that is good is that the Republican legislative leadership does seem to at least be supportive of the vaccine and supportive of people getting the vaccine and maybe even offering some mild incentives. That is better than the alternative in a lot of other states across the country. You know, 
in Texas and in Florida, basically they're working against trying to get people vaccinated, um, making it uh, impossible for people to put vaccine mandates in place. I don't think that that necessarily is the path that the Republican legislators have taken. So, uh, you know, we have a lot of people are like, well, what is the Republican plan for COVID response? And and Senator Stivers uh, had kind of hinted that he might have had a plan. And he, uh, you know, he he issued or he was part of issuing a plan for Clay County, his home county. Um, and again, the, the, the county with one of the lowest vaccination rates and one, the county with the highest COVID rate, the COVID case rate in the entire state right now. Um, he pointed to Senator Shivers talked about a program which incented citizens towards the vaccine by offering free pizza coupons and a chance to win Kentucky basketball tickets. This was widely ridiculed by Democrats, saying that Republican the Republican plan was a pizza party. Jasmine, what do you think about that? Uh, do you think that first of all, what do you think about the plan, and do you think that that criticism is fair? Um, I think the plan is. I guess, as you said, said it extremely mild yeah. incentives. The the plan seems extremely mild. The pizza party comment. I don't know. I guess at least they're doing something, <laughs> and I don't know how productive it is. Yeah. To to call it that, like I think that, like for better or for worse, if we want to do anything about this democrats are going to have to work with republicans and like encourage them and push them to do the right thing and i don't know if things like that are super helpful but i also understand the frustration that people are feeling that okay this this pandemic's been going on for a year and a half now and this is the plan yeah like i get it yeah absolutely and i i, I kind of think that like he you know, I think the point he was ultimately trying to make is localized incentives because he mentioned, you know, Clay County being a huge basketball county. You know, lots of people in Clay County love basketball. And, uh, you know, we're going to give you tickets to UK games. Maybe in Louisville you get tickets to L games. And he also talked about, like, equipment for local school districts um, and, and, you know, prizes around that, which is something that, you know, maybe a more localized Clay County response makes sense. And, he, you know, that might have been his his broader point, maybe. I don't think that's going to work, even giving it the most generous read, because, you know, it's worth mentioning Governor Bashir gave people the chance to win a million dollars many times over. There were like six or seven people that are going to win the shot at a million lottery uh, a heck of a lot better than tickets to a Kentucky basketball game. If you had a million dollars, you could buy season tickets to a Kentucky basketball for a couple years, you know. I don't even know what they cost now. I'm assuming less than a million dollars. You could buy a lot of pizza with a million dollars. And I just, you know, I think the incentives and the shot at a million, you know, it's hard to say. It's hard to evaluate what what effect that's having. But I think like incentives have been tried and are being tried. And and I think that vaccination rates are not what we wanted. And I do think that that. You know, the the other side of this is that we need mandates to be able to move forward. Like that's that's kind of where at least my head is at. If we're going to get vaccines up, we're going to have to find a way to mandate many people to have to get the vaccine. Um, and, and that is something that Senator Stivers is is ardently opposed to. And, and that is why, you know, so if that's going to be the case, we got to find better incentive programs. And I just don't think pizza and Kentucky basketball tickets and school equipment 
is going to cut it. Uh, so anyways, that's the Republican plan. So that is okay. Also, I said the, the leadership is supportive of people getting the vaccines and supportive of mild incentives, which is at least not bad. But more fringe elements of the Republican caucus are pushing against vaccines here in Kentucky. Uh, Representative Felicia Rayborn, she pre-filed a bill which would provide worker compensation to people, quote, who must get vaccinated as a condition of employment and experience uh, adverse side effects within 14 days, unquote. So the vaccines are not associated with any major side effects. Uh, you know, maybe like one day of, of sickness uh, or one day of like flu-like symptoms. Um, you know, I don't even understand what this is supposed to mean. You get like one day of workers comp or something. I, I don't I don't really know. Uh, and I think it's also just trying to scare people away from the vaccine in a way that many Republicans across the country have been trying to do most of 2021. Um, and that element is present in the Republican Party, even if right now the leadership of the Republican Party is being at least not irresponsible. There are elements of the Republican Party here in Kentucky that are trying very, very hard to be irresponsible. They are anti-safety. Um, and, and, you know, it, it is a little scary because it seems like that wing of the party is ascendant. And uh, I hope that they, I hope they don't get any more power than they have. So, Jasmine, uh, I'm not super impressed with the Republican response, although I am glad that they are at least trying to maybe bottle up the more crazy parts of their caucus. What what are your thoughts? Yeah, so, like, Felicia Rayburn's bill, if you're just, like, stepping back from what is going on and thinking, like, okay, if, if a job requires me to do something and I got hurt doing it, I would want compensation for that. But what is, I guess, a little crazy about it is that, like, there are no, like, major side effects from the vaccine. So, like, what is an adverse side effect? Like, a day with a headache or a light fever, you know, is that enough to get workers comp? Like, it, it's just kind of crazy to me. It's extremely irresponsible. <laughs> it's It's quite crazy. Like, it's just... It's just dangerous. It's just very dangerous. I, I don't. I. I don't know. It's 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 transgressive. It's. I don't know. I got a lot of antisocial. Like it's just is. It's just mean. I, I don't know. There's there's yeah. a lot of bad words for it. Um and and it is hopefully this bill dies a very ignominious death, never gets heard in committee. But we'll see. Twenty twenty two is right yeah, around the corner. I. I would assume that. And, and I don't know this, but I would assume that the Republican caucus at this point is like pretty split. I don't know if I'd say down the middle, but between legislators who who don't have a problem with the vaccine versus people who are actively trying to get people not to get it. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, taking a step back, like I think that that also just reflects the two big portions of the Republican Party here in Kentucky, where yeah. you have like a Mitch McConnell and a Rand Paul type wing, where you have people who are, you know, very, very conservative, want to impose a really, really tough conservative view on the the state of Kentucky that have been trying to build this for generations. And, you know, it's been a political project that's been ongoing for a very long time. Um, and But at the same time, are, are responsible and are not actively trying to hurt us. And then you have a Rand Paul wing who are just hard to describe. It's hard for me to wrap my head around where these people are at. 
I, it's just hard for me. I, I, you know, I can get into the mindset of a Mitch McConnell Republican. I get that. I understand where they're coming from. I disagree with them very strongly, but I, I get it. I understand where they're coming from. The Rand Paul people, I have trouble getting it. I have trouble understanding what in the world they're trying to do here, except for trying to just like own the libs uh, or like trying to just, you know, strike back against people who think they're smart or something. I, I don't, I just don't, I just don't get it. And, and it does seem like that those are the two wings of the Republican party. And it does seem like, you know, the Mitch McConnell wing has lost a lot of recent battles to the Rand Paul wing. And, and we'll see what happens in the near future. Whew. All right, Jasmine, it has been a terrible, terrible COVID week, and it looks like it's only going to get worse. So buckle, buckle up and uh, say your prayers. Before we leave, we have a couple of quick hits to get to. A couple of big ones. So the first one is that Representative Robert Goforth, you know, who as recently as 2019 was running for governor and, and nearly defeating Matt Bevin in a primary. He has resigned his house seat amid charges of domestic violence. The story here is really sordid and ugly. If you don't know the details of it, I wouldn't really recommend you check them out. They're, they're very bad. Um, but this has really been going on for quite a while. He was reelected to his house seat in 2020 with this kind of hanging over him. Uh, but but he's since resigned. Goforth actually won his seat in a special election back in 2018. And so now a, a special election is going to happen again. He's in a very conservative district. There is a, a lot of good re- Democrats in that district. It includes Berea. So there's a lot of good, you know, people associated with the college there and just generally progressive folks there in Berea in Madison County. But it also includes a, a lot of much more conservative areas. So, you know, I think that we'll have a good candidate running in that race and it'll be a good kind of test to see what we look like in 2022. Hopefully shock the world, win the race. We'll see. Uh, but I do think it's, it's good that representative Goforth has resigned. This has been a really ugly story and you know, he's, he's yet to have his day in court and we'll see how that goes. But, uh, I, I think that legislators have to be held to a higher standard and it, it looks bad and it, uh, I, I think it's good that he's, he's left a seat. Next up, uh, going back to a couple years ago and uh, all the stuff that's gone on in Bardstown, Kentucky. The FBI has conducted several raids in Bardstown regarding the disappearance of Crystal Rogers. Jasmine, the story about Bardstown is very long. Uh, we we could go in. We had a whole show about it, and um, there's actually a whole podcast, a whole series of episodes. Uh, Shane McAllister, a journalist here in Kentucky who works for WHAS, um, she put it together. If you're interested in learning more about this, you know, pretty pretty bad crime story, um, there's a lot of good reporting on it. It does look like the, that the case might be moving forward. The FBI took over this case not too long ago from um, state-level uh, authorities, and it does look like things are happening. So, yeah, Jasmine, I, I think that you actually first mentioned what's going on in Bardstown, like in year one of the show. So it's been going on for a very, very long time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay, next up, Jonathan Schell is running for commissioner of agriculture as a Republican. Ryan Corzell is, of course, term limited and much light and highly likely to run for governor. So, you know, the, the, the field for the commissioner of agriculture is filling out. So Shell is a former Kentucky re- representative who lost a seat in a primary to a more pro-education Republican back in 2018. That was a big shocker. Um, I was, you know, not I was quite surprised it happened. It was a race that a lot of people told me to take a look at. And I didn't because I figured Jonathan Shell, he was the majority leader at the time. I didn't think he had a chance to lose. And he lost. Of course, the the man who beat him was subsequently taken out in a primary in 2020 <laughs> to a more conservative Republican. So this yeah. is a seat uh, that has gone back and forth among Republicans 
um, uh, among the entire ideological spectrum of that party. Shell is a close ally of Mitch McConnell. He actually served as the campaign chairman to Mitch McConnell in his 2020 re-election race. And uh, he's also a close ally of House leadership, himself serving as House Majority Leader. Um, He also got that position by helping the GOP recruit candidates in 2016, which is, of course, the first massive wave that the GOP had um, that netted them a House majority. So John and the Shell running for Commissioner of Agriculture. He joins Representative Richard Heath, who ran against Ryan Quarles for, uh, for the Commissioner of Agriculture spot. And that is right now the field in the GOP primary for the Commissioner of Agriculture. Um, the Commissioner of Agriculture has been a Republican seat for a very, very long time. Um, I don't even remember the time, any time in you know my political memory when the Democrats held this seat. So uh, you know it's going to be tough to, for Democrats to win any race, but especially this one. So you know that it's it's important to know uh, the folks running for on the Republican side for this specific race. So that's Jonathan Shell. Yeah, I think that he'll have a really good shot at that seat. Yeah, He'll have the support of House leadership, a lot of Mitch McConnell money, probably. Mm -hmm. So I think he's probably the favorite. I agree. It reminds me a little bit of the AG primary in 2019 um, on the Republican Mm -hmm. side, which, of course, pitted Daniel Cameron against Will Schroeder, who was at the time a state senator from northern Kentucky. And, yeah, that... Cameron had all the McConnell backing and all the money, et cetera, et cetera, and managed to win that primary pretty handily, I think. And yeah, uh, yeah that that seems like the way that this race is trending. So, you know, the McConnell name and the brand and all the things that come with it, still very valuable here in Kentucky. Yes. The last one, I was writing this before we started. Patrick Baker, a man who received, um, I'm going to call it a sketchy pardon from Governor Bevin. Um, he was convicted by a jury. Um, the trial itself involved a lot of interesting twists and turns, including lawyers being held in contempt and having to hire other lawyers. But the upshot of this is that a man who was pardoned in state court was convicted in, uh, you know, federal court. So always seems weird that that's possible. Uh, but that is, there's a long line of uh, what case law that says, like, that is constitutional. Yes. Um, I'm sure that's a pro- I'm sure I'm sure that's annoying for you more than me, Jasmine. Yeah, but- pretty annoying. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, if you lose in one, you can just try your luck in another. Uh, so mm-hmm. prosecutors get two shots, and defense attorneys have to win two cases. So there you go. All right. Um, anything else that we need to talk about? I think that's it, Robert. Yeah. Uh, stay safe out there. Be very careful in everything that you do. The hospitals are not not great places to go right now, so hopefully you don't need one. Um, but yes, uh, that is what's gone on today. No guests this week. Hopefully we'll have one next week. We'll see. Um, but yeah, Jasmine, how can people get a hold of us? They can find us on Twitter and Instagram at my old Pod. They can like our Facebook page and listen to our show on the podcast app of their choice. We also have a newsletter that comes out on Friday mornings and you can subscribe to it at tinyletter.com slash my old Kentucky newsletter. We also have a Patreon page where you can support what we are doing for as little as a dollar a month. You can do that at patreon.com slash my old Kentucky podcast. And last but not least, we are part of the Demcast network. All right, everybody. Thank you for listening and we will see you next week.